One of the things that the rabbis teach is a prayer does not count unless it's loud enough for you to hear yourself speak. This whole monastic thing where you would go and it would be internal prayer and silent prayer, that's only been around about 300 years. This idea of verbal prayer started all the way back in Jesus' day and it still works today. And it is so important for us as believers if, if we don't learn how to speak out loud in our prayer, our minds wander, our focus is not as good, and there's something powerful about speaking. That's Richard Van Hus, and this is the Real Life Leadership Podcast. Pastor Van Hus has led successful ministries for over 35 years now, serving in many different capacities within the local church, as well as various roles within the district offices and national office of the Assemblies of God. Richard has a Bachelor of Business Administration from Evangel University and a Master of Public Affairs from Kentucky State. He currently serves as the lead pastor of New Life Assembly of God in my hometown of Winchester. And Richard is just a wealth of knowledge, a tremendous communicator, and it is an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast today. Richard, I know that you're busy. Thank you so much for your willingness to be on our podcast today. Thanks, Chris. It's always good to get together and visit with you. How was church yesterday? Did you guys have a good Sunday? We had a great day. People were responding to God. They were very open. They were really into their worship time. And the best part is they were responding to the Word of God. We were challenging them to be contagious Christians and to have a high-potency Christian life. And so they were seeking God, and a couple of them received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh, wow. Uh, so that's always an awesome day when yes. we have that take place. Yeah, so you're you're in this series, Contagious Christianity, right? Right. And this you said this is based loosely on, is it Bill Hybels' book? Bill Hybels' book, Becoming a Contagious Christian. What does evangelism look like now? I mean, how, how do you teach your people to really reach coworkers, family members, people on the street? Bill's book lays it out in a great way. Even though it's an older book, the principles are the same. It's based out of relationship. Yeah. Uh, requires that we are authentic. Uh, people don't want something that's fake. And so that's one of our biggest challenges. We have to be authentic. We have to own when we make mistakes. Uh, be honest about it and just confess our mistake. Because uh, Christians aren't perfect. We make some stupid decisions just like everybody else. You know, one of the reasons we changed our church name to Real Life Community Church is because we're uh, a bit tired of the fake persona that so many Christians have. We're scared to be real with people. But the truth is we all have issues. We all have struggles. And people need to know that. If we're going to help anybody, uh, that we've they, they've got to know the real us. And so transparency is really one of our values, and that is certainly important to effective evangelism. I think it's vital. Again, if if people find the fake, they'll reject the whole message. I love what you're saying about relational evangelism. You know, uh, there, there are people who are really big on handing out tracts, and, and I'm not against that, but I don't know that that's the most effective method of evangelism. You know, one of the things I, I try to do is go to the same restaurants, try to have the same waiter or waitress, uh, go to the same dry cleaners, you know, whatever it is, to, to build relationships with people out in the world, uh, gain their trust, talk to them just as a normal person about everyday uh, life, and then work the gospel in as I can. You know, Jesus was a master that he talked to the Samaritan woman in Sychar with topic about water. 
something everybody needs every day. So in the middle of the day while she's drawing water, he comes up and asks for a drink. And that was startling at first to her because a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman was almost unheard of. But then he turned a conversation to talk about living water. And I think as believers, sometimes we have to start with concepts people understand. Right. If we start talking with our Christian lingo or certain right. vernacular that they don't understand, we shut them down immediately. In fact, a friend of mine who did not grow up in church came mm-hmm. one time. And the church was singing a, an old song called I've Been Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb. He looked at me and says, why are they talking about bloody sheep? This is a weird group of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I have often wondered about some of our songs, people that just don't understand that Christian lingo. You know, Yeah, relational uh, evangelism is so important. And how have you encouraged your, your people to go out into the world and kind of put that into practice? Well, the biggest thing is to start with the people they know. Yeah. Their family, their coworkers, their neighbors. And just build that relationship. Let people know how much you care. Yeah. Be a real friend. Uh, be a listener. And then at the time when their spirit is ripe, I often say you have to look for ripe fruit. Yes. Uh, you can cast a lot of seed, but if it's not ripe fruit, you'll never see a harvest. Right. And so you wait for that moment when people are ripe, and then the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say to help bring them into relationship. You know, I love the story of the woman at the well that you, you just alluded to. And you talk about contagious Christianity. I mean, here she does. She has this encounter with Jesus. And then she leaves her water pot there at the well. And she goes and begins to tell others automatically about Jesus. And this uh, you know, crowd ends up coming to Christ. And many people end up knowing the Lord uh, because of her testimony. I think, in fact, if you haven't led somebody to Christ in recent months or years for many believers you're doing your christian life wrong yeah Uh, if your christian life is boring you're doing something wrong yeah one of the most exciting things you do is lead people to christ and then follow up with them and help them become disciples i've actually instituted a thing now where as you lead someone to christ i want you to baptize them in water it doesn't have to be the pastor i think if you led them to christ you should baptize them in water i love it Uh, that you're their spiritual mentor. You should guide them and help them. And when people get to have that experience, others sit around like, well, I want to do that. Right. And that's part of that contagious idea. As you mentioned, the, the lady, uh, the woman at the well, how she had that experience with Christ. She went and told everybody. Right. And so often we, the longer we've been serving God, we isolate ourselves with just Christians. Before long, our family are believers, all of our friends are believers, and we reach a point where we don't interact with unchurched people. Right. And Jesus went out of his way to rub shoulders with people who were not followers. He hung out with the tax collectors and sinners, would have dinner with them, and you know, people most people wouldn't ever want to associate with because he understood that close proximity is so important. He didn't allow them into their inner circle to influence his decisions, but he spent time with them to let them know he understood where they were coming from. Yeah, so we've got to be more intentional about building relationships with lost people. Why why are we so scared to do that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It just seems, well, it's just uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, we like what we like. We're just like anyone else. You know, I like what I like, and there's things I don't like, and I don't want to be around it. And so we tend to isolate ourselves. It's a natural reaction, but we have to break out of that comfort zone and force ourselves. 
I remember years ago I was a member of a fitness club, and I would wait till somebody got on one of the Stairmasters, knowing I had a captive audience for the next 20 minutes. Right. And I would start up a conversation and then find a way to transition it to a spiritual conversation because they were stuck. They weren't going to leave that Stairmaster once they got one. They were going to put in their 20 minutes of time. So it gave a great time. and It was fun because I didn't force you know, ideas on them. I just talked to them and then helped them look at spiritual insight. Yeah, and you know, John Maxwell, I think, coined the phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And one of the one of the things, once we start building relationships with, with those who are far from the Lord, one of the best things we can do is serve them. You know, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify their, uh, God who is in heaven. I love this random acts of kindness deal that's going on around now. I know it's not this is not just when the within the church, but I mean there are so many people who are intentionally, purposefully engaging in these random acts of kindness, and so I'm sure you encourage your people to partake in this these kinds of acts all the time. And I, I teach them it's going to take sacrifice sometimes to reach people. I took a friend recently to a UK game. Would have loved to taken my wife or you know another friend, but this was an unchurched friend right. that I've met, and I thought this is a great way for us to spend hours together. We will talk all the way there before the game, all the way home. And at one point, he turned to me and said, "You know, I believe in God. I grew up in church. I believe in God, so I think everything's okay." And I just chuckled a minute and said, "I'm just curious. Do you think the devil will go to heaven?" Of course, his immediate answer was, well, no, everybody knows the devil won't go to heaven. The amazing thing is the Bible says even he and the demons believe and shudder, but that doesn't make them Christians. And so it made him stop and think. And later, he, as we were parting that day, he said, you know, you got me thinking about things. I'm not exactly sure now where I stand. And that's how we invest in people, and it takes a little sacrifice. Because right. I said there were other people I would have rather taken just to hang out with, but I wanted to invest in his life because I thought it might be a key moment, and God gave us the opportunity to talk. So you have been in ministry for over thirty-five years. Did I get that right? Yeah, it makes me old, doesn't it? <laughs> so when you got in ministry, just saying I was five years old. <laughs> when did you realize you were called to vocational ministry? Well, the first experience. I was about seven years old, really since God was calling me into ministry. At seven? At seven years wow. old. It was on a Sunday night at the little church in Verdon, Illinois. Okay. Had an encounter with God, and I just really felt strongly that way. It was confirmed when I went to youth camp that summer. But as I got older, I saw things. I was a preacher's kid, and I decided I really didn't want to serve God that way. Uh, I would be a good board member, I'd pay my tithes, because I never met a church that couldn't use more money, and so I thought, I'll raise money, I'll be a good board member, I'll be supportive, but I do not want to serve as a pastor. I'll yeah. do anything but pastor. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. He does. So. He does. So over 35 years of ministry, let me ask you this, are you still as passionate about ministry now? And I know you have to be careful, because you might have some of your church folks listening to this, but are you as passionate now ministry as you were 35 years ago? Today I can say yes, but there are times we have that ebb and flow in our lives where there's days we get frustrated and uh, there's times everything seems to be going wrong. Right. Uh, you know, I'll be honest, there were months that I wanted to quit. Uh, it wasn't that long ago I looked for anywhere to go. 
Right. To Out, outside the, of ministry? Outside of ministry, other churches, different types of positions. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at anything and no doors would open. And I think God knows and helps us at those moments. He'll close every door so we can stay where we're supposed to be. He does. And how long have you been at New Life? Been there eight and a half years. Okay, and that's great. How important is longevity of a senior pastor to, to the health of a church? Well, you know, I grew up in the era when pastors would rotate about every two to three years. I think it stunts people's spiritual growth because yeah. you never build the long-term relationships. Studies tell us that after seven years is when the most fruitful ministry will begin. So I'm looking forward to the best years coming right now. Right. And I've just now reached the point where I'm beginning to have relationship in the community. The people I've invested in, I now have long-term investment with them. So I can speak to their lives. I've earned a right to speak very frank with them. Right. You can't do that when you first come in. It takes years of walking through the trials with them. What is the most challenging part of, of lead pastoring? One of the greatest challenges we face in pastoring today is everybody has an opinion or a preference and they're not shy about vocalizing it uh, it's trying to find that right blend of just the right kind of music to satisfy people or as in our case I often tell people we're an equal opportunity offender we'll do at least one song you won't like because we try to blend it's, we're reaching all age groups and various cultures so we try to blend different things uh, even the lighting can upset people these days and you're trying to find the right lighting and we video cast our services so it's important that you have the right kind of lighting but others don't like the dimmer lights at, uh, in the sanctuary and it's just funny how it used to be you would come to church and you would just go through the service and you would worship and wouldn't think about it but yeah. today Everyone has an opinion, and they want to tell you what they think. Right, and it's, yeah, it's, I call it the Burger King culture, where everyone wants it their way. Their way. And that, that is difficult. You know, one of, one of the things that's most challenging in, in pastoring to me, uh, in America at least, is how the Western world is very individualistic. We have an individualistic culture, uh, meaning that, you know, when, when we set out to do something as a church, there's a lot of the church you just know is not going to participate if it's some program or some dis, uh, discipleship venture, whatever it may be. You know, we, we just went through a 21-day Daniel fast, and you just know there's a good portion of our church that's not going to participate because, you know, people really today don't want to be pastored. It's, they they want to come to church. They want to hear a good word. They want to be motivated or encouraged by the music, but they really just want to do their own thing. Do, do you find that challenging? That's always a challenge. Uh and I would say it's a challenge today, but I suspect it's probably been a challenge for years. Yeah, uh, We just see it demonstrated a little more outwardly today. Can Is there a way to change that within the church culture besides just hounding it? <laughs> I have no idea. I think that's one of those things God has to do in us. Yeah, I was sure hoping you had an easy answer for me. The more we build on community and invest in each other's lives, the more it becomes natural. Yeah. We've seen something happen over the last few months. We used to have our men's prayer and fellowship time at the church. For months, we would have three to four men show up on Monday night. Mm -hmm. It was the same guys over and over. Um, it was good. I mean, they had good prayer time. They invested in each other's lives. But then we decided to move it outside the church. Okay. We're meeting at different restaurants, coffee shops. We'll fellowship for a few minutes and... 
then we pray out in public. It's quiet. We don't make a spectacle. But we'll have strangers walk up and begin to kind of look over our shoulders wanting to know what we've got going on. It has created a community out of the men. Last week, we ended up with 10 men. When we moved it outside the church, suddenly something began to happen. And now the guys are so committed to each other, they don't want to miss it. Wow, that's incredible. You know, uh, it's interesting that you say that. We just moved ours just this last Saturday. As a matter of fact, we had our first one. We had been having four to five men uh, come here for a men's breakfast on uh, Saturday mornings. But we just had one at Golden Corral here in Richmond this, this past Saturday. And we had 14 guys show up. And it was just absolutely incredible. But we met in a private room. We weren't brave enough to <laughs> sit in the main auditorium. Uh, the first time we did it, we were in Kroger at the Starbucks in Winchester. Uh, and twice we had guys come up and you know they were asking, what are you doing? And it's like, well, we're, we're having a Bible study and praying. Oh, that's great. And they'd turn around and walk off. And then while we were praying, one of the other pastors in town walked up, noticed we were praying, gave a big thumbs up, uh, walked out. So it began to give a public testimony. And again, that's part of this idea of becoming contagious Christians. We live out what we are every day. And we're not afraid of it. It opens the doors for us to show uh, we're genuine. Absolutely. And I think by doing that, it's helped other guys share their faith at work, with their families. Uh, because now they're public. They're not hiding it anymore. So right. it's, it's become a big help for them. I was with a pastor. We, we had lunch. Uh, it's probably been a, a couple years now, actually, but we were at Cheddar's in Lexington, and the waitress comes over, and she's taking our order, and this other pastor, he says, he said, can I, can I get your name? He said, is there anything we can pray for you about? He said, we're getting ready to have prayer for our meal. We'd be honored to pray for anything that's going on in your life. And she just began to pour out kind of these prayer requests. It's something I want to grow in, even as a, as a pastor, as a Christian, and I want our people to grow in, is just having that boldness in, in public to uh, not be ashamed of our faith and uh, uh, the gospel or prayer and these kinds of things and have those conversations. So important. So you are a uh, veteran youth pastor as well, right? You, you have not only youth pastored, but you have been a DYD, correct? Correct. And then a national youth director. I've done a lot of youth ministry. That's where I started, and, and you you got your start in youth ministry as well, right? Yes. There has been a shift, it seems, in, in youth ministry. How has that culture changed over the last couple decades? I mean, you, you've had to sh- see youth ministry shift over your uh, ministry tenure. It's changed dramatically. Of course, the whole culture has changed, but communication styles change. Right. Social media didn't even exist yeah. back in the 80s when I was a youth pastor. Right. Not only that, like even when I was a youth pastor in my first church, we didn't cell, we didn't have cell phones, text messages, any, anything like that. So. Oh, yeah. I didn't have a cell phone even when I was district youth director. Well, I wish I didn't have so, one now. <laughs> there are days it would be very nice. Uh, so the whole communication scheme is different. Yeah. Uh, expectations are different. It would be a challenge for me to be a youth pastor again. I, that's why I'm glad God calls younger men to come along, young right. men and ladies. Right. We have a lot of great women youth pastors who come along, and they're reaching students today. Yeah. And uh, I just pray over them. And The principles still work. The principles are using the Word of God, investing in relationship and discipling. Jesus said make disciples. He didn't care what the culture was. Right. Uh, 
it works everywhere. The principles of making disciples, people who follow Jesus, will work no matter the culture. Yes, I love what you're saying uh, because my philosophy here is we don't just want to be entertaining students. First of all, our our entertainment, what we would call entertainment, pales in comparison to what the world offers. So we can't compete with what's going on in the world. Uh, but the gospel still really works. And I realize that there's some methodology that has changed over the last you know, decade. And I, I realize that we have to do some things differently to reach students. But the word of God is foundational. Because I don't want these students to just be entertained and come to church and ha- us have a large youth group. And then them go off to college and fall away from the church or the, the Lord or you know whatever. We, we want them to be solid real followers of Jesus Christ and so the word of God is pivotal in uh, you know in in teaching them obviously in growing them and discipling them do you feel like sometimes we underestimate students or we don't maybe expect enough out of them and I think one of the greatest fallacies we run into right now is we look at the current generation some people call them snowflakes and some of those students are very selfish uh, they have an entitlement mentality, and we lump them all together and think it's a hopeless generation. In fact, we have students today that are some of the most incredible young men and ladies I've ever met. They sacrifice. Recently heard about a group that raised $50,000 for missions in order to equip missionaries. That is not a normal attitude for teenagers. Right. And yet, here's a group out of this generation that's making a difference. I watch some of them, and as they get committed to a cause that they believe in, they're willing to do anything for that cause. It's so easy to just lump them all together and say, because there's a few vocal ones, they're all like that. In truth, we have some of the most incredible young men and women. And when they have an experience, that Mm -hmm. will outlast anything else. Mm -hmm. I had a college roommate who's now the president of a university while he was going through his doctoral program, he was challenged in his view about Scripture. And he admitted that at that time, his view about Scripture got shaky because people who were very learned were very critical of Scripture and its basis. and It, it began to worry him a little bit. And he said at that time, he could have lost his faith, but it went back to his experience. Because he had an experience with God growing up, he had received the infilling of the Holy Spirit. God had directed him by his spirit. Mm-hmm. So when everything else got shaky, his experience brought him back to his faith. And I don't think we challenge our students enough to have an experience. If they have an experience with God, it'll push them through anything else they face. Right. Yeah, we have to give them those opportunities certainly to encounter God. And, and just like we talked about, you know, the woman at the well, they need to have the, that kind of life-changing encounter with Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful for our students here. We, honestly, our day-to-day ministry wouldn't, wouldn't happen if it weren't for our teenagers. They serve in our nursery. They serve in our media departments. Uh, obviously in different capacities in the community through the youth group and things like that. Uh, Right now, they're preparing uh, very diligently for fine arts. And matter of fact, Wednesday night, we're going to have a big showcase of all of these human videos and vocal solos. And, you know, one one of the mistakes I I think we make as well as a church is we we kind of encourage students or, or in a sense, equip them during their their teenage years, but we don't empower them for ministry. We say, well, when you're old enough, you can engage in ministry. And I just think that one of the greatest things that that we can do is really right now empower teenagers to work. Yes, sometimes it has to be alongside adults, but 
empower them to use their gifts right now for the Lord. I think you hit on it right there. We have to open doors and let them step into it. When you look at the history of our movement, we started out as a youth group. Everybody in the church was under 35. It was easy to let young people lead. As we grew and we got more assets and got more conservative and we wanted to protect what we had, we began to shift and use older people for leadership who got conservative. And we closed the door to some of the younger ones. Yeah, I'll never forget when I was the national youth director, I went in to interview for the position. And one of the board members for the executive presbytery said, He's only 30 years old. And fortunately, I had a friend sitting on board who goes, well, it is the youth department. What's wrong with 30? Right. That's young. <laughs> but it had grown to the point they were cautious about trusting a 30-year-old right. to lead something. You know, It started out, the, the early guys doing it were all in their late 20s, early 30s. We had just kind of reached a point where we expected older leaders in their 40s and 50s mm-hmm. instead of letting young people lead. And I think the key here is we got to open doors and let them go. Right. For some of us that have been around a while, I know I'm always willing to let people come in, and I'll step aside more and more each day letting them take off and go. Right. That's incredible. And, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about challenges in ministries and talking about some of the worship wars and the lighting and things like that, I think we as the older generation, we must be willing to allow some of our preferences uh, to you know, to be put on the back burner, let other people kind of, we've got to change our methodology to reach this younger generation and allow them to do things that are important to them. You know, we've kind of had our time. Um, Yes, we we are still obviously important to the church. We need to continue to to grow and serve as well. But I just think we've got to make room, even in our methodology for young people. I went to a church several uh, years ago. This has been over a decade. I was an associate pastor at a true life there with Randy Weeks and Randy was the presbyter uh, of our section and I, I showed up Easter Sunday morning he said Chris I'm sorry to lay this on you today but he said I actually need you he told me to always have a sermon ready he said I, I need you to actually go to another church and fill the pulpit today and, and by the way this was Easter Sunday morning <laughs> oh, wow. and uh, there's no pressure but uh, he said you know this is an older church and, and he said they're without a pastor right now and we have nobody to preach this Sunday and so he said I actually need you to go over there so I go didn't know what to expect and I go to this church, and there were 12 people there Easter Sunday morning. And this is a church that had been around for well over, I believe, 50 years. I preached my heart out like there were 100,000 people there. And I had this really kind older gentleman come up to me at the end during this altar call that we had. And he was dressed in his three-piece suit, and he had tears in his eyes. And I said, sir, what's what's wrong? And he said, you know, I've I've been at this church for a long time. And he said, we, we really had it going back in the day. And he said, um, we never invested in our young people. And he said, I just look around today and see what the result of that has been. And they ended up obviously closing their doors. The, the church couldn't sustain itself. And so it's just so important to, to invest into that younger generation. And I'll be honest, it's, it's hard for me. Sometimes I feel like I'm a 70-year-old trapped in a 40-year-old body. I, I like hymns. I like very lit sanctuaries. I'm a traditionalist in in many ways, and that surprises a lot of people, but but that's the way I am. But I've realized that if if the church is going to sustain, and and I'm talking about the local church, 
um, if this church local body is going to continue to make a difference in our community we're going to have to continually invest not just in teenagers but even also our children's department as well we put a lot of emphasis in our in our children as well and so I, that's just so vital for healthy ministry we put about 20 percent of our budget in our children's ministry because i think if we get that start at the foundational level it'll grow and build through the rest of it it's in fact you know, Billy Graham Associates said at one point, 90% of those who accept Christ will do so by the age of 12. We need to get our biggest bang for the buck out of the early years. Doesn't mean we give up on them after 12, but we've got to reach them while they're still kids. Yeah, so you mentioned Billy Graham. Uh, what influence did Billy Graham have in your life? Well, incredible man of God, great integrity, role model that every minister should want to follow. I think one of the biggest things I learned from Billy Graham was he kept his message simple. He preached the cross. And didn't complicate it. No. Uh, in fact, you'd go to his crusades, and you'd sit there, and you'd listen to that message, and you'd think, well, I could do that, because it was so simple. And yet, uh, in being involved in a couple of his crusades, the foundation was laid months, sometimes years before a crusade, through prayer, inviting people, teaching them how to share their faith, so that the day that Billy Graham would come and preach, that was a harvest day. All the work had been done prior to that. So when he would share that simple message and allow the Holy Spirit to convict people, they were ready to respond. Hearts were cultivated. They were. That's it. They were cultivated. Yeah. They were ready. And that was just the fun time of seeing people respond. And, and he was wise enough to understand that. And when he came into Louisville when I was there, that was a big thing. He said, thank you, because you've laid all the foundation this harvest is more to do with what you have done than what I will preach that night. Mm. And he just shared a simple word. And again, didn't complicate it, didn't politicize yeah. it. That was another thing I like. He stayed right. out of politics. He just would preach the word of God. Which is so interesting because Franklin Graham is <laughs> such a, like a political figure now. I, I want to say, hey, learn from your father, son. Uh, but I won't go there. Um, but, but yeah, I, you know, I, I love Billy Graham. You know, one of the things that, that I loved about him most in is that he seemed to bring the church together. It wasn't about a denomination. It was about Jesus. Sometimes we get so so much in our own bubble, it becomes about Assemblies of God or it becomes about Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or whatever. And I just think it's important. I mean, this world needs Jesus. We can all learn from each other. As long as we uh, we have the, the main things right, you know, we, we believe in the triune God and the deity of Christ and so on and so forth, the gospel that we're saved by uh, grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, uh, we should be able to come together as denominations and fellowships. I fully agree with that. I think the more we try to add in other things instead of Christ, yes, the more it divides us right. instead of unifies us. We both know that it's all through Jesus. And if we right. focus on Jesus, everything else will work out. Yeah. Just reading in Colossians a couple of days ago just about the preeminence of Christ and, oh, how that's needed. Uh, this this ministry, uh, everything we do, everything we say, it's all about Jesus. It's not about me, you, a certain generation. It's about him. As Paul said, I purported to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, if you just know that and keep your gospel that simple, you'll be effective. Well, before we close, let's talk for a second about uh, just personal growth. 
you would strike me as a personal growth junkie. I, I would say that we share that in, in common. You seem like a pretty accomplished person and you want to pretty diligent with your time and that kind of thing. Is that a fair Sometimes. analysis? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably not as good as I should be. Well, what, what does personal growth look like to you? What, what are some of the things that you try to, areas that you try to grow in on a monthly, weekly, whatever daily basis? I'm constantly trying to go back and evaluate and ask strategic questions. Uh, and one of the things I've been learning is how to look at systems. As you build systems, it will answer your strategic issues. For instance, if you want to get closer to God, you build a system where you spend time with God. Yeah. You spend time reading. Uh, I used to tell teenagers, I don't care how much you read, read until God speaks to you. Mm-hmm. That might be one verse. That might be ten chapters. Right. But read till God speaks to you. Building systems where you understand I have to do certain things in order to get certain results. Uh, it's not that you know we do anything by works, but if we don't practice the right principles and the right actions, we can't get the results. So I think the older I get, the more I understand there are systems that work. And if we get distracted from those, we get busy. It's one of the worst things about being a pastor is you never know for sure what your schedule is going to be from day to day. Right. You can have everything planned out, and one event can mess up the whole day. And so I've learned that you have to implement systems that will work and be flexible, and that helps me grow. I, I do read. I love to read. I read a variety of items, uh, everything from theology, which I'll be honest, it's probably not my primary reads. I, I do go back to them because I need to learn. Uh, I listen to podcasts from guys like Wave Nunley, who's an incredible scholar. and a So I have leader. just started reading his book. Uh, I think, matter of fact, you recommended this to me the last time I saw you, Spiritual Giftedness. Spiritual Giftedness. And his thoughts on prayer are, are pretty incredible. I go back to that thought on prayer on a regular basis. Uh, Explain, just we won't go real deep, but just to give our, our listeners a taste of, uh, of what that's about. Well, Wave comes from a background of understanding the Jewish culture. He lived in Jerusalem. Uh, He got his doctorate degree from the University of Jerusalem. So he is very familiar with their culture of how they worship. And one of the things that the rabbis teach is a prayer does not count unless it's loud enough for you to hear yourself speak. This whole monastic thing where you would go and it would be internal prayer and silent prayer, that's only been around about 300 years. So this idea of verbal prayer started all the way back, you know, in Jesus' day, yeah. and it still works today. And uh, it is so important for us as believers if if we don't learn how to speak out loud in our prayer, yeah. our minds wander, our focus is not as good, and there is something powerful about speaking. There is speaking the word of God, speaking our prayer, speaking yeah. with confidence, and it assures our heart. So. That was a great read. I love that part of his yeah, book. Yeah, I'm just a bit into it, but I, man, that first chapter is is rich. So if the rest of the book is like that, I tell you what. <laughs> and I love Wave always goes back to the Word of God as our yeah. foundation. Right. It's not our culture. In fact, there are some things we do in our church culture that's not biblical. Right. It's not necessarily unbiblical, but we add on, and he's like, we can't right. do that. We have to go back to what the Word says. So what about corporate prayer? Uh, we just did a 21 days of prayer and fasting as a church, and we had corporate prayer throughout the week. And, you know, Jesus says, of course, when you pray, go to your prayer closet. But at the same so we know that there are times when we are to go alone and pray just 
just to the Lord where no one else can hear us. But is it all right to pray in, in public as well, um, like as a, you know, as a congregation and pray out loud verbally? Again, that was a big part of their culture and still is. If you were to walk by a Jewish church today in Israel, you would hear the entire congregation praying out loud at the same time. I grew up, you know, Pentecostal background, so that was normal for me. And then I would hang out at different events with some of my friends from other churches, and if more than one person was speaking at once, they would look at you like, you know, you're rude. Yeah. Uh, how dare you? God only hears one prayer at a time <laughs> type of attitude. Right. And so for me, it was kind of a, a backwards look. It was like, well, I don't understand, but okay, I'll go along. I don't want to offend anybody. And then Wave's book brings that out. The, the Jewish culture is that when they came together collectively to pray, it was everybody praying. It wasn't just a each take our turn and speak once at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a big part of their culture was to have corporate prayer. In fact, if you read throughout the book of Acts, they often got together and prayed corporately. It was right. not just individual prayers. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, that's throughout throughout Acts. And so we know that that's not wrong. You know what I told our people during the series? I said, Here, here's a good test to see if you're just doing this for show. Don't do in public what you're not willing to do in private. So you mentioned as pastors, you know, our we can have our schedule neatly lined out every minute of every day, and one event can uh, essentially change our entire week uh, or month, <laughs> for that matter. Yeah. But uh, we we have these kind of urgent requests all of the time. One one of the things that my one of my mentors, Charles Hefton, uh, said to me, he said, Chris, you always need to when you're doing your calendar, you need to work in 17 hours a week of interruptions. And I remember thinking, uh, Charles, 17 hours of interruptions a week, and I have since learned uh, often that's not enough. That's not enough. <laughs> there are so many interruptions. So do you try to do that when you make out your schedule? Well, let me ask you this. what? How do you plan your week? Do you use a digital calendar planner? I use digital calendar, honestly, in pastoring a a rural church, you often just kind of fly by the seat of your pants. There are routines I do that start my day, and then I'll have a basic plan. I, I have an outline of the three most important things I have to get done. The important, not necessarily the urgent. Okay. Uh, so I'll focus on those. I spend Thursdays really focusing on making sure the message is ready for Sunday. We'll usually try to wrap that up on Friday. Sometimes we'll go back over it again on Saturday and mm-hmm. do touch-up. If if I prepare early, then as I get new ideas or I, I let it mull over in my mind, it's easier to ad- adapt. But every morning I, I start early. My wife goes in at 7 a.m. She has to be at work that early. So I get up when she gets up, and I head to the office, and I use that time. It's when I can read the passages that I've designated for reading. I try to do a, a Bible systematic Bible study or plan mm-hmm. that's different than message preparation. Uh, I want to read some devotionally just for me. Yeah. Then I spend time in prayer, which uh, usually it, it can be anywhere from you know 30 minutes. I'd like to say I pray hours every day, but it's by the time I read and I spend that time in prayer, and then by that point the phone's ringing. Right. Uh, somebody's trying to reach you, text message, and it seems like that's when the interruptions start to kick in. Um, like I say, I'll, I'll have my week planned out, certain events I know I have to do. I try to work in family time. Mm-hmm. 
and some things you just have to schedule and make happen. Outside of that, I'm flexible. I try to visit with people. I make phone calls and messages. You know, there are just certain routines we do every day. But um, the key for me, if I don't do that devotion time or spend time with God early, once the day starts, it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah, that's vital. That's what we try to teach our uh, people here at Real Life to do as well. You know, Jesus said, uh, you know, in, in the model prayer he gives us, he tells us to pray for our daily bread. And I always tell people, even if you would be dedicated at praying at different parts in the day, why would you pray for your daily bread at the end of the day or midday? Pray for that at the beginning of the day, right? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that, that morning time is, is vital. For me, I have, um, I love getting up between 4 and 5 o'clock every morning and people freak out when I tell them that. Uh, it seems like people in Richmond love sleeping in. It's it's been unique. Actually, starting at ten forty-five here <laughs> has been dis- difficult because that's early for Richmond. Apparently, uh, man, I like eight thirty services, and I love uh, from anywhere from four to six o'clock. That that is my favorite time of the day. It's so sweet just to sit in the presence of God, to read my Bible, to pray. Uh, to read some personal growth books, whatever it might be, just spend time thinking and evaluating. Uh, that's the only time during the day I don't get interrupted. So I think. And I will so attest that you do get up that early. I received an email from you at four fifteen this morning. <laughs> there you go. I was trying to figure out if you were still up from the night before, or if you'd yeah. gotten up that early. No, no, I, I get up. Uh, but if I'm honest, this morning I did fall back asleep because. <laughs> I was exhausted yesterday. was a long day. But, yeah, I, I try to get up at 4 o'clock every day if I can. Last thing I have on here, uh, you're, you're teaching. We have an incredible school here in our district, Kentucky School of Ministry, known as Kason. My son is actually, my oldest son who's graduating, is actually uh, really interested in going for his credentials and, and going to Kason. So you just taught a class that I took years ago at, at Berean School of the Bible, The Life of Christ. Tell us about that experience. Let me back up first. KSOM is one of the best tools that God has ever given us. We started it years ago. In fact, it's been 15 years ago, I guess, we started it. Now, was that when you were in the uh, district office? I actually uh, laid the foundation for it and attended the very first session. Okay. And then I had accepted another position between the time we planned it and the first session. So I got to see it, and then I left. Stan Holder is the one who has developed it and made it as successful as it is. I give Stan the credit for that. It's, it was kind of a brainchild that a group of us had out of the uh, Great Lakes region. Uh, we were at a retreat one weekend, and we were bemoaning the fact that in our rural areas, particularly eastern Kentucky, we were struggling to find pastors. Mm-hmm. You would send somebody who was very gifted into a small church in eastern Kentucky And in six months, they were giving up leaving because they couldn't find employment. The church couldn't support them. They weren't from around there. Yeah, they're not part of that culture. You ain't from around here, are you, boy? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And because of that, they would go in and try their best. And they were good people, but it just wouldn't have fit. And we got this idea, why don't we just find people from that area? They already have jobs. They already know the community. Right. They're already part of the culture. If God puts a calling in our life, why don't we train these people? Because they're not going to leave and go to Bible school. Yeah. So we got the idea we'd bring them in. Uh, Sam Smith was in Salyersville. was actually one of the model pastors. Sam was, at that point, 62 years old. He worked about 50 hours a week at a lumber yard. He had an hour commute each direction. 
And then he would get home, do what he had to to help pastor his church, study for Sundays, and we told him he had to finish his studies in order to get his credentials. He told me one day, he says, you know, Dick, I really want to do this, but by the time I work and I get home and I do the church stuff, I'll sit down to read. It's not 30 minutes. I'm asleep. And my heart went out to him. and was like, if you could read your textbooks during your lunch break and you'd come one weekend every other month and we could finish a class, would you do that? Mm-hmm. He's like, I'd love that. Mm. Uh, before he passed away, Sam had gone through all the classes and actually been ordained. That's 36 wow. classes, and he got ordained. And I'll never forget that night. He hugged me, and he's like, it happened, you know, because Kaysom wow. came along to equip people who had a calling that couldn't leave to go study for a few years. Yeah, it's great when you can study in some of the best teachers in the world, right. but not everybody can do that. So we're able to come back. And, yeah. It's not cost-effective either to, to go to the, you know, I was looking... Well, my, my undergrad degree was to just to go to a private Bible college was fifty thousand dollars or more, or more yeah. these days. Yeah, and uh, so I love Kason because it is very fo- cost effective, right? What do you know the the cost per class right now? I don't. Ballpark. I think it's about sixty dollars a class. Yeah, I mean it's just incredible. And it, my understanding is that the classes are accredited now. They are accredited, uh, and if you want college level work uh, through Southeastern mm-hmm. University. You usually have to do an additional paper or some kind of research to gain the college level credit, but you can actually gain three hours of credit per class. Yeah, that's incredible. The Life of Christ class was fun. I, I was filling in for a friend who had a medical issue come up and was unable to teach, so I was given six weeks to prepare for a class that I had not taught. In mm-hmm. fact, I'd never seen the textbook. They had changed textbooks since I had seen the class. And so they mailed me the textbook. It's three inches thick, 10-point type. So in addition to the textbook, you have to read all the Gospels in order to coordinate them into the text mm-hmm. and prepare to teach two days. You start Friday night at 7, and you complete it Saturday afternoon. Yeah. So. I was just buried for six weeks. It was mm-hmm. everything I could do. Every free moment was reading through the Gospels. I think in that six weeks, I read the Gospels four times. Wow. Uh, was able to finish the textbook and do the study guide that the students do so that I knew the material and would be able to step in and, and help lead that class. Mm-hmm. It's so much fun. In fact, I love Life of Christ because what else is there that's more important than Jesus. Uh, so get to study on the life of Christ. My standing class I teach every year is the Book of Romans, which Lucky is you. one of the most complicated <laughs> classes, but I have it a lot is. of fun with it because yeah. we like to look at some of the different issues of theology and we argue both sides and yeah, determine so it, that you know Paul and Luke weren't Calvinist and they weren't Arminiast. You know, they yeah. were just Jesus people. Right, uh, right. So, yeah, so maybe we can unpack Romans chapter 9 before we close. <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much uh, for being on the, the podcast today. Anything else you want to say before we close? If you're listening to this and you're part of a local church, can I tell you the best thing you can do for your church is just be there regularly, support the ministries, catch the vision, promote what God is doing, not necessarily... You've got to promote what your pastor's doing, though I think they hear from God and speak. But see what God is calling you to do and be involved and make a difference in the lives of others. Amen. That's our show for today. I want to thank you so much for listening. If this podcast is a help to you in any way, 
We don't ask for much, but we would ask that you would go on to iTunes or whatever platform you listen on and subscribe and give us a rating. That will help get this great content out to other people. Have a great week.